Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, found on page 596 of the Provided Bibles. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his, genera yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he was poured out, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. We have Bibles on the table over there if you uh, want to, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to be able to follow along a little more closely, feel, please feel free to get up and grab one of those or the black Bibles on the table. We've been going through the book of Isaiah and we're um, today at the, uh, one of what is probably one of the most familiar passages in all of the book of Isaiah and in one way uh, really sort of central to the message of Isaiah, it's become sort of the climax of the book that is the resolution of all the tension that we've seen happening throughout the book. That, that tension being, how can, in terms that we've looked at in previous weeks, how can sinful Israel become servant Israel? How can the Israel that is become the Israel that God intended them to be and promises they will be? How can... Uh, this rebellious, sinful people be uh, reconciled to a holy God. The resolution of how God can be called, on the one hand, in, in uh, common titles given to God in the book of Isaiah, how God can be called the Holy One, 
And at the same time, God can be called your redeemer. The resolution of how God can take the individual Isaiah back in chapter six, a man who confesses to be unfit for the presence of a holy God because he's a man of unclean lips and how that man can not only remain in the presence of God, but how his guilt can be taken away and how he can be restored to service of this holy God. And the resolution of how not just on an individual level, but on a corporate level, God can take the people of Israel, a rebellious people who justly deserve his judgment as we've seen all throughout the book and can make them his servants who, bring, who, who uh, represent his glory before all the world and who live faithfully to him. The way he does that, the way he takes sinful Israel and makes them servant Israel, the way he takes sinful human beings and, and reconciles him to himself such that they can be in his presence without fear of his wrath and rejection is through the servant who suffered for God's people to take away their sins and make them righteous. And we see that coming to the forefront in its most explicit detail and explanation here in this section of the book of Isaiah. It's the central point of Isaiah, but beyond that, it's really the central point of the Christian message. It's the heart of the gospel itself, the good news which Jesus came to accomplish. This is the fourth Uh, what's called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We looked at the second and third last week, and I've already said the servant songs portray an individual. The book of Isaiah talks about the corporate nation of Israel as God's servant, but when when these servant songs are portraying an individual that rises far above and beyond what God's people ever were, but what any normal, ordinary human being could ever be, it can only be God's chosen Messiah, the anointed, the divine savior. And here we see that all the more clearly. And you know, in Isaiah chapter 53, the section we read, you can look very closely and you won't see Jesus' name anywhere. But Christians rightly read these verses and dwell on these verses and see Jesus' face everywhere, in every line, of this section passage of scripture. In every part of it, we see the face of our savior who gave his life for us. And we see that rightly. It's hard to believe that when Jesus was walking with the disciples who didn't recognize him at that point after his resurrection on the the road to Emmaus, it's hard to believe that as he was explaining what was said in all the scriptures from Moses to the prophets, what was said about himself, it's hard to believe that he didn't at least mention this passage here, right? And if you remember in Acts chapter eight that this is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he encountered Philip the evangelist and he asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip takes this opportunity to tell him about Jesus in that text that says he begins with this very passage of scripture to tell the Ethiopian eunuch the good news of Jesus. And that man receives Jesus as his savior. The good news of Jesus is what Philip the evangelist considered this passage to be about. 
The good news of Jesus is what scripture considers this passage to be about. The good news of Jesus is what the Holy Spirit tells us this passage is about. It's good news. It's good news of Jesus. This passage is good news to all who see themselves in need, to all who see themselves as guilty, to all who see themselves as unable to cleanse themselves of that guilt, to all who see themselves as unfit or inadequate or unable to live up and hopeless then to save themselves. Because this passage is good news. It's not good advice to the strong and capable. It's not congratulations or congratulatory to the competent, competent. It's salvation for sinners. Salvation for sinners is good news if you realize that you're a sinner. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the core center of Christianity. When you look at the core center of Christianity, what do you find? When you look for the heart of the gospel message, what do you get? You get good news for sinners. You get God's salvation of sinners who can't save themselves but are saved by his grace, by his intervention, by what he sacrificially does for them, not for what they do for themselves. Jesus came to bring good news, not, as he said, not to the righteous, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Righteous people don't need a savior. Sinners do. And the point of him saying that isn't that, well, there's some righteous people and some sinful people. No, it's that there's some people who see themselves, think themselves to be righteous and so not in need of any savior, but other people who know that they are not righteous, who know that they are sinful and at the news of a savior come for them, their hearts are lifted up. They rejoice. (laughs) They seek after him and hold on to him by faith. That's what it means to believe you're a sinner and hear the good news of God's salvation for sinners. Because the core center of Christianity isn't just teaching. Teaching is essential to Christianity. It's how the gospel is preserved and passed on, but that's not what it is in itself because if it was what Christianity was ultimately foundationally about, then that would mean that the gospel's core message was obey this teaching in order to save yourself. And that's not good news to sinners. That's only good news to righteous, strong, capable people. The core center of Christianity isn't the good example of a good man. That is an essential part of Christianity, but it's not the core center of it because if it was, what that would mean the gospel's core message was, was follow the good example of that good man to save yourself. And that's only good news to the strong. Those who have the moral strength within themselves to follow that good example, good enough. The core center of Christianity isn't Either don't do bad things or do enough good things to make up for your bad things. Because if it was, then it wouldn't be good news to the guilty who know they have sinned and can't cleanse themselves from the guilt of that sin. We live in an inescapably moral universe where people really know that wrong and that the guilt that results from wrong is, are real things. 
Most people don't agree on what is right and wrong and what we should feel guilty for or not guilty for, but we can't deny, everybody agrees that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And the way we live shows that to be true. Let me give you two reasons. I, I, I think I've said this before in a sermon a while back. I repeat myself every once in a while. We live in a culture, here's the first reason, we live in a culture filled with outrage. If you don't believe me, just look at Facebook or Twitter or some social media filled with outrage and outrage doesn't arise out of preference. Outrage doesn't arise out of preference but out of a sense of real morality, right and wrong. And we, can't, we may not agree on what is moral, but we, agree, we can't deny that it's there. We're outraged when we're on or when we think we're on the right side of morality. But then the second reason we see this, uh, that we see that we live in an inescapably moral universe is that when we're on the wrong side of morality, we don't just shrug it off and say, who cares? We make excuses we blame other people. We try to get the guilt off of ourselves and put it somewhere else. I wasn't really wrong. I had a good reason to do that thing I did. There were extenuating circumstances. You don't have all the facts. It wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault. The devil made me do it. You see, we make these excuses. If, why bother with an excuse at all if, there's, if you don't feel this need to avoid being found in the wrong? Why bother with an excuse at all if right and wrong is just preference? But the reason we instinctively do those things is because we know that there's something beyond mere preference or cultural consensus. There is a right and there is a wrong. We may not agree on what it is, but we, no one denies by the way they live that it's there. Outrage betrays our knowledge of right and wrong. Excuses betray our sense of personal guilt for what we've done wrong. We know we're guilty. We can try to ignore it. We can try to deny it. We can try to disguise it. We can try to cover it up. But we know deep down that if we are to approach a holy God, we will not measure up. We cannot stand tall and firm in our own righteousness. When we're faced with guilt, we either want to believe that there's no price to pay for it or that we can pay the price ourselves. But the Bible says neither of those things. There is a price to pay and it's a price too high that none of us could ever pay it because our sin has offended an infinitely holy God, our creator to whom we owed all because all that we are and have comes from him, yet we rebelled against. There's a price to pay and we could never pay it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to pay it he didn't come just to show us the right way or to teach us about God. He did those things, but he came for something more foundational and more central to than those things without which all those other things would have been fruitless. But this foundational central thing accomplished, uh, what this accomplished made all of his mission successful and fruitful. And that was this, to suffer and die in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin and guilt, to make us righteous before God and to bring us back to God. We've seen the figure of Cyrus earlier in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus is promised to bring God's people back to Judea, back to Jerusalem. 
But Cyrus couldn't bring them back to God. He couldn't take their guilt away or change their hearts. That's what Jesus does. And that's good news because if we feel distant from God, if we feel lost, if we feel like God could never love us because the mountain of sin and guilt that stands between us and him, then we can come to Jesus and know that he moves that mountain. He is the one who takes away the sin that keeps us from God so that we can draw near to him and be found by him and be received by him as his children. There's three things that we're gonna look at in this passage about just that, about how Jesus does that for us, how Jesus resolves that tension, how Jesus accomplishes that salvation. First, Jesus was a rejected savior. Second, Jesus was a suffering savior. And third, Jesus was a victorious savior. First, Jesus was a rejected savior. We see this in chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse three. And in this verses here, there's a strong contrast between what will be done to this servant by the God who sent him and what is done to this servant by the people he was sent to. On the one hand, God will exalt him and honor him. On the other hand, the people he was sent to will reject him and despise him. There's a strong contrast between who he really is and what the people see him for. He is God's servant and the people dismiss him because they can't see beneath the surface of who he is. 52, 13, it says he will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. And these words, this phrase here uh, only appears in the book of Isaiah four times and three of those four times it describes God himself. You see, it's cluing us in right at the start of this servant song that this individual is no ordinary person, but that he is on the level of God himself. He is divine, the divine Messiah. And this, the pet, this servant song starts off with that little word, see. And another way you could translate that is behold, and it carries the connotation of pay attention to, don't miss. See, it's a, see my servant, Pay attention to my servant. Don't miss my servant. And that's so important to say because the way the servant would come would be easy to be missed and dismissed because he didn't come how people expected. And if what this passage says about this servant is true, if what this passage says about his ability to save and bear sins and bring healing and redemption is true, you better not miss him, right? If that's true, of all the things you can pay attention to, this is, this is the thing. Of all the things you could dismiss, this is not the thing to dismiss. But that's the irony of what happens here is that throughout the passage, though they should fix every eye and every bit of attention on him, instead of beholding him, instead of seeing him, instead of uh, honoring him as they ought and paying attention to him as he is Uh, He is worthy to be paid attention to. Instead, he's disregarded. Instead, he's dismissed. Instead, he's cast aside. Instead, he's ignored. Instead, he's despised. Instead, he's rejected. God will raise him up and highly exalt him, but they, the people he sent to, will be appalled by him, 
They will reject him. And the reason is because this isn't the kind of Messiah they were expecting. He didn't come in the way that they thought he would come. The Messiah, this Messiah, came in weakness, in humility, in suffering. Instead of uh, <clears throat> hearing about victory and might as we would expect to hear here, when it says in 53 verse one, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord is the, the, the mighty strong hand of God's salvation. When we hear that, the people who heard that would certainly think of some mighty conqueror, someone like Cyrus, who could trample on their, their political enemies. But that's not what they get. They get in verse two, a tender shoot with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And in 53, 14, says they were appalled at him. That's the wrong verse. I meant 53, verse uh, 52, verse 14. Sorry. They were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. It's not just that they don't think there in this verse, it's not just that they don't recognize him as God's Messiah. They don't even, they look at him and say, is, that, is he even human? You see, they were focused on all the wrong things and so they failed to see him for who he really was. They looked at him and thought uh, him worthless, unworthy of attention or honor, rightly and quickly dismissed. And in one sense, he looked ordinary. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, it says. He wasn't characterized by some sort of external, superficial radiance, but his beauty was beneath the surface. It was in his inner character. It was in his life of love and self-giving for the benefit of others. It was his beauty was in him becoming a lowly, humble servant who washed feet and died on a cross. But they could not see that because they had different values than God had. In one sense, he looked ordinary. In another sense, he looked ugly because he did not exempt himself from suffering. But instead, he took it upon himself. He suffered, and he suffered loss and looked as though his life was characterized by futility and utter defeat. So what, what, what's gonna, if you need salvation and you see someone who looks defeated, what's gonna attract you to that person? He looked like a loser, and so they looked at him and thought, what can he do for us? He's got his own problems, right? But see, they're only looking at the surface and they're only looking at things from a worldly perspective. He was ordinary. He wasn't one of the beautiful people, at least by worldly standards. And he was ugly. He wasn't one of the successful people by worldly standards. And so the world that loves those worldly values and standards found him unattractable and reprehensible and they dismissed him. But when they do see him for what he really is, what they missed in him before, they will be shocked and speechless. In verse 52, verse 15, kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will then see. What they have not heard, they will understand. See, because when the light of truth 
will expose their values for what they are, superficial and shallow and empty, and it will reveal God's values for what they are of eternal weight and goodness and beauty. Then they will know that this one that they had dismissed ought to have been exalted. He was rejected. John, in his gospel prologue, says it this way, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Unrecognized, unreceived. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the child of God. Behold my servant, God says. Pay attention to him, don't miss him. Honor him, don't despise him. Don't let the values of this world blind you to the true beauty and goodness that is found in him. And we today, right now, face the choice of whether we will accept or reject the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Savior of sinners. He was rejected Savior for a second. He was a suffering Savior. We see his suffering all throughout this passage. But the burden of this passage isn't just on the fact of his suffering. The burden of this passage certainly says that he suffered. It maintains the fact of his suffering, but the burden of it is beyond that. It's the reason for his suffering. Not just that he suffered, but why he suffered. And there's three things we're, we're going to go through that we see in this next section. The next section is chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. We see that he suffered innocently. We see that he suffered willingly. And we see that he suffered as our substitute. In verse 9, we see that he has suffered innocently. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, it says, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You see, in both his words and his actions, he was innocent. In fact, this is saying more than just he suffered innocently and didn't warrant the particular suffering brought upon him in this instance. It's saying more than that because the Bible affirms there are other people besides Jesus who, were, who are innocent sufferers who didn't deserve the particular suffering they experienced by doing something that brought it upon themselves or who suffered unjustly. But it's this person is put in a different category than just what the Bible would call an innocent sufferer or an unjust sufferer. He is in the category of sinless sufferer. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Who can claim that for themselves? Who can claim to be as he was a sinless sufferer? See, he wasn't only an in innocent sufferer, that he hadn't done anything to deserve this particular suffering, but he was a sinless sufferer. He hadn't done anything to deserve any suffering at all. He was sinless, yet he became in the words of the Apostle Paul, sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He suffered innocently. Second, he suffered willingly. We see this in verses seven and eight. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And the main point of this is that from start to finish, his treatment was unjust. It describes it as oppression. 
But despite that, despite the fact that from start to finish, his treatment was unjust and undeserved in every way, he didn't object to it, protest to it, or resist it. That's the point here. And what that means is because it's not as though, he's not described as a lamb here because he's ignorantly being led to the slaughter. Uh, he's not, it's not that he doesn't know what's going on and so he doesn't protest. Rather, he knows exactly what's happening, but he willingly submits to it because what's happening here is not that his life is being taken away from him, but he's laying it down of his own accord. When people are compared to sheep, the point of the comparison is their tendency to get lost and get themselves into trouble. But when the servant is compared to a sheep here, the point of the comparison is his non-defensiveness, his submissiveness, his willingness in being led to death as a sacrifice. And see what the Isaiah is trying to drive home here and saying that he didn't object, he didn't protest, he didn't resist, is Isaiah wants us to make sure we know that his death is not the result of some unplanned, unforeseen, unpurposeful tragedy. Certainly his death was tragic. Tragic beyond any tragedy. But that's not the point. It, it, it wasn't mere tragedy. It wasn't just an accident of history. It wasn't just the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't a victim of circumstances beyond his control. No, he was voluntary. He was willing. He knew that this was God's purpose for him and he embraced it. It was tragic, yes. It was a death undeserved, unjust, at the hands of wicked men, yes. But as Jesus said in John 10, 18, that I already alluded to, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. He suffers Innocently, he suffers willingly. And finally, he suffers as our substitute. This we see in verses four through six of chapter 53. And I'm not gonna, re I'm, I'm gonna sort of read through those uh, in a summarized way, but what I want you to hear as I do that is listen to the primary contrast that we see in these verses four through six of chapter 53. And the contrast is between him and us. We and he. His and ours. And listen to this contrast. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering we considered him punished by God, punished by God for his own sins, what it's talking about there, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see that contrast there between what happens to him and us? Between what we deserved and what he deserved. Between what was ours but what was laid upon him. You see, when looking at this man who is a man of sorrows, people would easily conclude what people often concluded in that day and what people often conclude in our day, that, that this man suffered because he sinned. That he sinned and warranted his own suffering. 
But this passage is teaching us just the very opposite of what they would have expected by looking at his life of suffering. If he suffered, it's not because he was a sinner, but because we are sinners. The clear, unavoidable conclusion here is that he didn't just suffer. He didn't just suffer with us, even though he did that. He didn't just suffer because of his people. He suffered for his people, instead of them, in their place for their sins, our sins placed upon him and punished in him and paid for by him so that by his wounds we are healed. By his punishment we have peace. You see, he had no sins to pay for his own. He was innocent, sinless, yet he suffered as a sinner because he was suffering and not for his own sins, which he didn't have, but for our sins, which he took upon himself in our place as our substitute. He suffered innocently, willingly as our substitute. And it's no coincidence that in all of this section, there's only one metaphor being used. And that's the metaphor that I already mentioned of sheep. We saw it begin here in verse six and it continues into verse seven, which we already looked at. And that metaphor of sheep, what would that bring to mind for the original audience of Isaiah? Without question, it would bring to mind the sacrificial system in which the sinner would offer a lamb or some other animal and the priest would lay his hand on the lamb symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that blemish-free innocent lamb and then kill it and sprinkle its blood on the altar as a sign that blood has been shed and atonement for sins had been made so that the sinful people could be restored to God. The lamb takes the sin upon itself and is killed and cast away and the people who have their sins taken off of themselves and paid for are reconciled and draw near to God. But we know, they knew, God's own word tells us that the blood of sheep couldn't atone for the sins of humans. Only a human could do that. But there's the problem that another human would be a sinful human and his death and suffering would be paying for his own sins. But this passage tells us that in order to be a tr true substitute, a perfect human would have to die in place of a sinful human and only a divine human could be a perfect human and if divine then that divine human could have enough sin bearing capacity and righteousness within himself to take the sins not just of one other human but of all humanity as much as would come to believe in him and that's what John the Baptist meant when he saw Jesus and said look the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus' death, God gratifies his love and satisfies his justice, his love which restores his relationship with the people he loves by giving of his son. And his justice which can't ignore their sins but sees they are paid for by giving his son to take up our sins so that we can be forgiven, healed, and reconciled to ourselves. He suffers as our substitute. Finally, we see in this passage a victorious savior. This is chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. At his death, it looked as if his life ended in defeat. And if that's all there was, his death, 
If all he did was suffer and die and lie in his grave, then there would be no reason to think that he really was sinless, divine, or successful in what he sought to accomplish in his death. But verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And because he submitted to that, his death, though it looked pointless and fruitless, was not in vain because God had good purposes. God had a reason in calling his servant to that death. It wasn't pointless, but it was instrumental in accomplishing redemption because though he suffers and dies, that wasn't the end of his story. And verse 10 continues, he will see his offspring. That, I believe, is us, by the way, the church. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper him. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. You see, whatever darkness he underwent, it, un- it gives way to light, and by his knowledge, the righteous servant, it says, will justify many. The righteous servant will justify many. Righteousness and justify come from the same root word. Justify means make righteous. The righteous one will make righteous many. The righteous one will make others righteous because he, the sinless one, took people's sin. And so in verse 12, he is exalted because he has poured himself out for us because he descended to the lowest depths a life of humility, suffering, and death on the cross, God will exalt him to the highest heights. It says, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. That is the language of a victory procession. That is the language of conquering. He has not failed in any way, but has been victorious. And the resurrection proves his victory over sin and death for all who trust in him. Let me just give a couple ways that we can apply what we've looked at in this passage. Applications first, we can have humble confidence before God. Humble confidence. Confident because we know we have been reconciled to God. We are forgiven. We are adopted as his children. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. But humble confidence because we know that that doesn't arise out of ourselves or our own works, but only out of what Jesus has done for us. See, God's grace to us is not just a whim. God's love for us is not just how he happens to feel about us today, but may not tomorrow. It's rooted in his justice and based on what Jesus accomplished once and for all for us. His perfect, unchangeable work that once by faith we receive becomes ours. And we have no reason to fear, but only reason to be confident of God's acceptance of us, God's love for us as his dearly beloved children. Second, we, have, we, can, we should have loving gratitude towards God. See, someone doing something nice for you ought to generate some gratitude in your heart towards them. Jesus pouring out his life to death for you. Jesus taking God's wrath for all your sin. Dying in your place, dying the eternal death that you deserved to bring you near to God and give you eternal life and make you right with him, should that generate just a little bit of gratitude in our hearts towards him? 
No, it should generate limitless gratitude. It should generate eternal, undying gratitude. When we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus, we ought to be filled with love and gratitude for our salvation. And as he poured himself out for us, we then pour ourselves out to God as living sacrifices for him. Third, we ought to hate sin. Because this passage tells us, shows us vividly God's own attitude towards sin. This is the measure of how seriously God views sin and rebellion. And so we ought never, we who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, ought never to make peace with our sin, but we ought to fight it to the death. Fourth, we ought to live with humble service. That's how Jesus lived. He became a servant, though he was God. He became a servant and entrusted his life to God and let God raise him up at the right time. And if he who was God and who deserved all the rights and privileges of God lowered himself to become a servant, how much more ought we, who aren't God and who don't deserve all the rights and privileges of God, ought to be servants and lay down our lives in humility for others rather than live in pride expecting those around us to lay down their lives for our wants or desires. Fifth, we ought to forgive others and we ought to love our enemies. These are pretty broad applications, but they're important. We have been forgiven for all of our sins against a holy God. And when we take that to heart, forgiving others is not easy, but it's manageable. (laughs) It's put into proportion. We gotta forgive others and we gotta love our enemies because we were God's enemies. He moved towards us in love. And that's what we ought to do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the work of Jesus would become real to us in a new way that we would not just gloss over it as Jesus died for us on the cross, but that we would really know our sinfulness, that we would know our guilt, but that we would look to our Savior and find forgiveness and be assured of that forgiveness and find joy and hope and peace that results from that, that our hearts would be filled with gratitude. All these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.